Welcome to the Fracture Line, the official weekly news feed from the Chest Wall Injury Society, where we will listen to all the bottom line CWIS updates, shoutouts, fun facts, and weekly banner. I'm your host, Dr. Mark Crisco, and I'm joined always by Dr. Tom White, Dr. Adam Kay, and Sarah Ann Whitbeck. Well, hello, everyone, and welcome to this week's episode of Fracture Line. We have a little bit of a thin crew today, but I think we will get things done. It's our distinct pleasure to have Dr. Jaron Butterfield on today. This invitation was prompted by a recent publication of his, and we've invited him on to have him discuss this case report and to tell us about his chest wall injury journey, and we've got something pretty new and exciting coming up on the horizon to tell us about. So, Dr. Butterfield, will you please introduce yourself to us? Sure. My name is Jaron Butterfield. I've been in South Carolina, Columbia, Prisma Hospital for the last four years. My rib plating journey began there. I don't think I was uh, aware of it or knew anything about it until Dr. Watson, my co-author, and I kind of introduced me to this uh, concept. And already kind of something that they were working on when I got here was cryoablation. And we always talked about kind of water cooler talk. Well, you know, that patient looks so much better after rib plating and cryo. Was it you know, one or the other. And so we were always kind of on the uh, lookout for interesting case to kind of highlight some of the nuances between the two. And there's been, I think, a good flurry of new literature in the last few years, some good retrospective studies on cryoablation. But we had a good patient that offered this opportunity. We had a patient that had some poorly tolerated intraoperative anesthesia, I guess. And we went into the uh, case with the goal of doing some bilateral rib plating for pretty significant bilateral chest wall injury and was kind of our routine to do cryoablation at the same time and due to the patient not really tolerating surgery we kind of did a half measure with the plating on one side with cryoablation and then anesthesia said if you guys can wrap it up we'd appreciate it so we elected to just do cryoablation alone on the other side and I kind of followed this guy for the remainder of his hospital course and within a couple of days he was extubated out of the ICU and telling everyone on the floor that he had no chest pain on either side and it seemed to us like a good prime example of some of the nuance behind chest wall trauma and I think our thought is that there's likely a very significant benefit to the rib plating itself but probably also some patients and some injury patterns that are more pain related I guess is the outcome that might benefit for that particular patient or that particular pattern and not really perfectly clear but our patient was interesting enough and had a good enough outcome with his bilateral cryoablation but unilateral rib plating that we thought it was worth writing about and uh, fortunate enough to bring me here. So, Jaron, thank you for presenting this case. And I think it's interesting because I think many of us have thought about doing this on a larger scale or in a more controlled type of study, having patients serve as their own control. And uh, you managed to pull it off in this patient. You say that he afforded you this opportunity, but let's be honest. Were you terribly disappointed when the anesthesiologist said, let's, let's abort this case. I mean, it gave you a rare opportunity to do what you ultimately did. So I want your insight into that. The other question is, was the pattern of injury similar enough on the right and the left that comparison is valid? And then maybe lastly, this is a patient I would love to know how they evolve. What do they feel like at six months, a year? 
do they truly have an equivalent recovery and is their functional outcome identical or is there some disparity between the two sides? I hope you're going to tell us you're going to follow this guy or at least your partner is going to follow him. Yeah, so I guess for starters, we were probably on the lookout for an interesting case like this where the patient can kind of act as their own control. So it was not terribly disappointing. That's how it uh, played out. I think this gentleman had some suboptimal social circumstances and had some other lower extremity injuries that he went to uh, rehab for. So I think his follow-up will be suboptimal. But there was a couple of times case managers tell me he's, he's going to go to rehab today. And I go check in on him just so I could kind of see how he looked, how his last day there before he walked out the door. And every time he was like, oh yeah, my chest feels fine on both sides. Nothing feels totally different. In fact, the only thing he, he said, there was maybe a little bit of fullness on the side that we actually plated. That was the only thing he could tell that was different. Otherwise, nothing that he had to complain about. So TBD on the long-term follow-up, I think he's made one post-op visit so far. So let me ask you this. I'm going to play devil's advocate here for a second because, you know, I've thought about this a lot. In fact, I just had a patient just the other day that he was 18 and he uh, was in a a rollover NBC, and he actually had some pretty decent rib fractures, but the family initially just kind of wanted cryoablation. And then when I got back there in the operating room, I mean, his chest was pretty unstable, you know, just with three rib fractures. And so we ended up plating him. I talked to the family and made sure everything was okay. I just didn't do it. I'm not that type of surgeon. Now, I know that, you know, the anesthesia wanted you guys to to uh, kind of speed things along. So that's why you made the decision to cravel it. But what if uh, six months down the road, the patient comes back to you on the side that you didn't plate? It's like, oh, man, I'm feeling all this clicking and popping. And now it's like catching and interfering with my activities. And, man, you know, I, and you get a CT scan and it shows a non-union. Yeah, I think it's a good point and still a lot to find out about these. I think, I mean, first questions with the non-union in general is just like why they didn't heal. Is there a, some other underlying factor? Is it malnutrition? Is it lifestyle? Uh, was it the, the injury pattern itself? To backtrack in, in the guy's case, he did have fractures that were similar in number on both sides. They were bicortical on both sides. One was maybe a little bit more anterolateral on the right side, and one was maybe a little bit more posterolateral on the, the right. But otherwise, as far as a a good control. We thought it was about as similar as we were going to afford it for uh, an experiment like this. But yeah, to your question, I think the first question, why is there a a non-union? What other factors are there that we could possibly optimize that may have led to the situation? And is it something that we still have, you know, ability to address and get some improved quality of life. So, Jaron, you're making a big move here soon. Tell us a little bit about that. I was a surgery resident in uh, Columbia, South Carolina for long enough. (laughs) I'm going to do trauma critical care in Palm Springs, Desert Regional, hopefully take a chest wall interest and practice with me. I'm going home to the West Coast, though. That'll be fun. Palm Springs has hospitals? <laughs> has hospitals. Yes, lots. Yep. There's a lot of old people there. Yeah, I was going to say, hospital. he'll be leading the charge on our octogenarian population. This yeah. will be fantastic. Between uh, Phoenix and LA, a lot of high-speed trauma I'm anticipating. A lot of blunt MVCs. Rib fractures from golf balls. <laughs> That'll be the next course. case report. Yeah. I wanted to challenge Dr. Butterfield a little bit and ask him why he didn't fix this sternal fracture and ask Zach if he would have tackled this. It's a little bit awkward because it's manubrium only and it's oblique and this piece isn't very big, but... I just want to know what his thoughts were about that. Yeah, I don't think repairing sternal fractures has been as quick to catch on as the uh, rib plating at our institution. We've kind of asked around, and I think the, the more recent conferences and papers we've 
heard discussed, I think there's probably more of an interest and I'll be looking out for these more in the future. But um, I think this, this wasn't really something we were looking at too heavily at the start and it didn't seem to bother the patient that much either. So several days after rib plating, you know, he, he was happy with his chest wall and pain respiratory function and really didn't seem to have any complaints with regard to his sternum. So that was another big factor in this case. So if old lady Johnson in Palm Springs falls and cracks her sternum, you're going to be watching our cool sternum exposure video series, aren't you? I can tell. Absolutely. I see it now. I just saw Dr. Bauman wipe the saliva off his chin. He's salivating in this case. (laughs) I know what he would do. He would repair this with maybe some sort of star plate or maybe some sort of L plate. But this first rib over here is fractured, obviously. So this construct here is probably unstable and probably might be quite painful. But you've already told us he didn't have any chest pain, but I would have been compelled to fix this. I don't know. Zach, what do you think? That's a pretty good fracture there. I would have been... I would have been compelled to fix it as well. I just think that that's going to be, you know, unstable. And obviously it worked out for the patient. Um, sounds like it worked out well. But I think that given the fact that he was on the ventilator, I probably would have addressed it at the time. And I, the one thing that I always get worried about is, you know, the, the chest wall is a whole unit. And so how much, you know, it's, it's kind of like that old adage going back to like the flail chest patients, for instance, all the way back to Marasco's patient, uh, a paper and whatnot. I was like, if you just fix one of the fractures, but you don't fix both the fractures, like have you really done that patient a service or a disservice? And I think in that paper, you know, she was suggesting that you're probably doing them a disservice because you're going to cause failure of the one that you fixed because you didn't fix the other one. And so, you know, when you look at the chest as a whole, when you start looking at overall stability as a whole, you know, how much, if you're just fixing a portion of it, are you really providing that you're restabilizing that chest the way it needs to be stabilized. And I don't think we have a good answer for it yet. It's a question that I've been fascinated about, you know, and hence the reason that I've been working with uh, some of the companies with this finite element analysis um, to try to better answer that question. But uh, it's a, it's a tough question to answer, I think, because there's just so many moving parts of the chest. I agree fully, Zach. We just don't know. I don't think that bilateral fracture lines though has is the same thing as a segmental f- classic flail on one side sort of thing. I worry about leaving one half of a flail unrepaired because I think it levers residual pain, but it also stresses your pair line significantly more. So I think it's a setup for more failures. And I think Marasco proved that. But I don't know about bilaterality. If you leave one side unprepared, does it put your other side at risk? This case would suggest otherwise. Yeah, no, absolutely. I just don't think we know what we, we don't know what we don't know. We're, we don't know squared. It's a great case, Jaron. It really is very interesting and I think raises a lot of questions. More questions than maybe answers. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so to that point, I think you, you uh, mentioned it earlier, there's been, I mean, you had a paper in, I think, 2021. It was one of the earlier ones looking at cost-effective arena, length of stay. There's been at least two other large retrospective reviews on cryoablation that have stimulated enough questions, and we're trying to work towards doing a prospective study. And I think the prospective question on cryoablation is twofold. I think one, one question is just replating with or without cryo. Is there a difference? And then another question that I think we were trying to work on a protocol for at our institution was in patients who don't really meet criteria for intervention, is cryoablation alone have any kind of significant benefit? I think those are two interesting prospective studies that we're trying to work on to hopefully give a little bit more uh, light in the cryoablation efficacy. Dr. Butterfield, that was so bold. I love it. When you reference someone's research back to them, 
Oh my gosh, that is fantastic. <laughs> that just made my whole day. Thank you so much because you know right now Dr. Bauman is like beaming inside and he's going to go home tonight and tell his kids to be like, guess what? Guess what? Someone referenced my own study to me today. And they'll be like, cool, dad, we don't care. But he'll know in his heart. So that's uh, pretty fantastic. Way to go. I can't remember. if I think I put that in the actual paper, but I, I can't remember. I had at least three reviews. There was a Fernandez paper from Creighton and Martirano from Atrium most recently had a, a pretty large retrospective review that had some good outcomes with cryoablation compared to their non-cryoablation group. So yeah, I think the prospective study, if we can get a good protocol and maybe share that with a few institutions, we'll hopefully get a good answer to that question soon. So at the summit, I was waiting for someone to take a moment and freestyle from the mic and just ask the audience who all does cryoablation and who doesn't. I thought that would have been uh, interesting just to see the hand uh, hand raises across the auditorium. I think, Dr. Bowman, you might have done something similar to that at one of the rib plating courses a while back. And it seemed like there's a pretty good core that's incorporated into their practice. But I think it'd be interesting just to see who's using it and would be you know ready resources to include in a center study just to get a good answer to the question. No, we use it almost... I can't remember the last time was I didn't use it on a patient. In fact, I just did a rib fixation today and we used it, you know, so we use it pretty robustly here. It's part of our you know, pretty much standard of care here at the University of Nebraska Medical Center. So, Have you done any cases where you did cryoablation but didn't do any rib plating? You know, I have not. And it's not that I'm opposed to it. I just... You know, to me, if I'm taking the patient to the operating room and I'm putting them through the risk of a procedure, you know, I have a really tough time hanging my hat on somebody's CT scan. I know where the fractures are at based on the CT scan, but we also know based off some recent research that rib fractures become more displaced over time. And especially if the patient's having symptoms or telling me they're clicking and popping or their pain's terrible. I'm just like, if I just do cryoablation, am I not doing this patient adequate service? And I don't know the best answer. I'm not saying that like for right or wrong. I just don't know if that's the, if I'm right there. Like, why wouldn't I not just throw um, plates on them and stabilize the chest and then do the cryoblation too? I don't know. I don't know the good, I don't know the right answer. Yeah, I think that was the thought when we were thinking about how to ask the group if they wanted to do this at Columbia. There's plenty that I think will have that same argument. Like, I'm already here. Why not just... Yeah give me a few seconds, throw a few plates on there and call it good. There was one guy six, eight months ago, fairly bad CHF, EF of, I don't know, 15% or something that had pretty minimally injured ribs. I think there was only three of them. So we held off initially until he had to be intubated and re-intubated. And then we did a quick little external cryoablation only procedure. And that seemed to work well for him too. Maybe I should write that one up also. But yeah, there's been a, just a handful of cases where we've tried to get in there and do something. We didn't think they were going to tolerate it for one reason or another to do full stabilization of the rib fractures. So I would actually probably be more inclined to do it without rib fixation at the same time if it wasn't a surgical procedure, which is something that I'm actually, we're working on here is being able to better implement and roll out percutaneous uh, cryoablation. You know, but I think that, I don't know, I think like having to take a patient, you know, all the way to the operating room and then putting them under the general anesthetic and single lung ventilation and the vats and everything, 
I'm just like, I'm there, you know, it just makes sense to fix the ribs too and stabilize that, you know. Um, you know, I, I questioned the patient a little bit too. It was like, how much is related to pain? How much is the instability? How much is it a combination? You know, I, I don't know. And I don't know, Tom, if you have any you want to add there too, but I just think it's a, it's, it's a tough question. Yeah, I have very little experience with cryo. I've only done it a couple of times. I've, you know, I'm not anti-cryo. I just don't have the expertise or experience to comment. But I, I do want to get on my high horse for just one second. And then I'm sorry, but I have to scoot to clinic. This will be my final stitch. And a final thank you to you, Jaron, for coming on today. I appreciate it. This was a case I did yesterday. And I noticed on your 3D reconstruction, you just can't see the cartilage very well. And I'm increasingly distressed by how challenging it is and how infrequently we obtain adequate cartilage imaging. And it's important. So just a challenge. When you get to your new shop, sometimes when you're a new person in a new place, you have some power because you're the new guy and you've, you've got some influence. So first thing you should do Monday morning when you get there is go down to the x-ray department, find your radiologist that's going to be your friend and the techs and say, look, we're going to start doing a bunch of rib fractures and I need good imaging and you guys need to learn how to render cartilage for me. So that's my suggestion to you. After the summit, I did ask, I forget whose talk was highlighting their software. Where Dr. They were. Edwards. I went back and I asked one of the CT techs at our uh, facility if that was something that they could easily do. And they said, oh yeah, just let us know. <laughs> we're happy to kind of adjust adjust the 3D recon. We, we didn't think you, you ever Oh, you let us know if it's that easy. I would love to hear from you. We'll see if it's that easy. They made it sound really easy, but uh, good point. I'm just really impressed with your presentation and your, your willingness to put this in the literature. I think it's very provocative, and I really applaud you to that. I wish you the best with your new endeavor, and please stay in touch. All right. Thanks, everybody. Have a great day. Bye, Tom. Bye. Good, good luck at clinic. Thank you. Phew. Glad we got rid of him. <laughs> just kidding. <laughs> Let's move into some updates, Sarah Ann. Do you have some updates for us about uh, what's going on in the Chess Wall Injury Society? We sure do, you guys. It's fantastic. So we actually had a terrific case review today. If you missed it, keep an eye out on the website. We'll get the archive posted. But we had Dr. Bauman present. We had one of Dr. Shira's trainees present. And then we also had Dr. Greifenstein. So just a really good one. Go ahead and, like I say, catch that on the online case review system if you missed it. We are loading up all of our content, you know, certainly just getting everything set as we speak. So our July journal club is set. July ribinar is being confirmed right now. July case review, we're actually full. So there are lots of things to come in the next couple of weeks. As far as August, our ribinar is set. Journal club is almost set. And case review, we have, I think, one or two more slots available. So things are definitely building um, all at once. So Lots to come and then, you know, certainly the fall brings on all of the opportunities for connection at the member receptions. So as just as a reminder, CWIS will be hosting receptions in conjunction with the WST in Anaheim, in conjunction with the OTA in Seattle, and with the ACS in Boston. So if you're attending any of those meetings, keep an eye out on the newsletter and uh, sign up and you can join us. You can bring colleagues, partners, trainees, you know, whoever you think would want to come and and meet our cool community that would be fantastic we would really enjoy getting to see everyone and get together and you know break bread so that should be fantastic excellent well let's move into the final stitch anyone got a final stitch for us today i have two actually so one is a tip this week i was steaming vegetables and i had just a half an apple sitting on my counter and i chopped it up as well and threw it in with my steaming vegetables and guys, it was delicious. This was my first time steaming apples and carrots and, you know, cauliflower and broccoli together. And it 
was pretty fantastic. So if you haven't done it, grab whatever you have in your garden, whatever's growing right now, and you know, toss it all in one big steamer together. It was great. My second final stitch, I know, who gets two? But apparently I do today. <laughs> it is the time of the garden here and I have been digging in my dirt and it's pretty much the best thing that, that happens in my world. So there's dirt under my fingernails and last night it was like the sun was going down and I had Garth Brooks in my headset as I was digging in my dirt and I just thought this is this is heaven. This is as good as life can be. So there you have it. It's just like Joe Dirt says, life's a garden, dig it. I, honestly, it was so fantastic. Anybody else got a final stitch? I guess to piggyback off of that, I can add Dr. White and I was talking before started. He was sharing some of his experiences in Palm Springs and coming up with a good to-do list for outdoor activities and just taking that moment to pause and focus on work-life balance or at least starting out with a good plan before it gets out of balance again. So a good opportunity to refocus. Yes, it is. Well, I can go. I, I have to share this with you because it's a pretty funny story about my stupidity. After uh, Fracture Line recording last week, I took the kids to a little swim party and uh, we got back home. I bought a new house uh, a little while ago. We have a deck that comes out the back and there's no ladder that goes down to the basement level. And so Friday I got like a TV mounted on the outside there. So me and the kids could sit out there and watch, you know, TV outside on these beautiful evenings, you know, just hang out. We got some couches up out there. Well, it was just installed on Friday. We get home from this uh, swim party. It's about 8.30. And the kids are like, let's go watch TV out there. Let's watch a movie or something. I'm like, sounds good. That sounds good. So we all head out there. We all went out there except for my three-year-old. And as soon as we all get out there, she shuts the door behind us and locks it. And so here we are out on this deck, nowhere <laughs> to escape to. And we're like trying to tell her how to open it up, how to open it up. And, and she just... All of a sudden, she just decides she wants to pout, and she just goes and sits down and, and won't move. So here she is in the house by herself. <laughs> Me and the other three kids are outside on the deck, and I let her kind of sit there for about 30, 45 minutes to see if she'll just kind of come to and open it, and she wouldn't. She was being three, and so I started, like, texting and calling people that I know that I couldn't get a hold of anyone. So dad's got to do what dad's got to do, and so I basically had to jump off the deck <laughs> to like let us back in well it's a pretty high deck i got this like huge bruise on my arm like i fell off and i hit the hot tub on the way down thought i broke my arm it was a whole thing it was a whole disaster luckily i'm okay i thought i was gonna wind up as a trauma patient in my own trauma bay but uh yeah it was quite the ordeal so i've learned my lesson i now have a key taped to the back of my tv out there if anyone ever wants to break into my house it's pretty easy but yeah i do have to climb up on top of that deck which I think would be a feat in of itself. But uh, yeah, that was a fun Friday evening. So Carl, what do you got? Oh yeah, another week gone. And again, it's just trying to get this house together before the new year starts. I'm finishing up sort of the second week of orthopedic surgery that they have us do during the first year. So doing a lot of different hip replacements, knee replacements, and fixes, things here and there, patella fixation today, different stuff, different days. But it's a little bit more relaxed than the normal surgical schedule. So just trying to catch up on stuff before we get right back into full motion next week with a new set of interns, which will be sort of the final crowning achievement that I'm no longer an intern. I'm just a resident. Ooh. Whoa. All right, guys. Well, I got to run to a trauma. It was great seeing y'all. All right. Have a good day, Dr. Bowman. Okay. Good to see you all. Dr. Butterfield, thank you so much. Have a good one. Thanks for having me. Thanks, Jern. Appreciate it.